Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from a remotely scattered throughout the national capital region kind of broadcast today. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, broadcasting live from Arlington, Virginia. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how you doing, sir? Fine, sir. Good afternoon from Alexandria. And joining me, as he usually will be known to do on Tuesdays, he is a former uh, Joe Biden political operative, longtime Democratic political operative, and bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland, the District of Columbia, is the man we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, hello. Hello, Justin. Hello, everyone. And... He is also joining us today, as he does every Tuesday. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington political insider. He is the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And also joining us today from uh, the great city known as New York, she is former Clinton legal advisor in the great state of Ohio for the Clinton campaign in 2016. She is also an attorney from the great state of New York and the great garden state of New Jersey. She is the woman that we know as Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, how are you? I'm great, Justin. Enjoying the 95 degree weather here in New York City today. Absolutely. Nothing makes a concrete jungle more hospitable than 95 degrees. Glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, um, so you go away for two weeks and pretty much nothing happens. Uh, we had we had a uh, eclipse yesterday, and my God, we, we go away. This is supposed to be the slow news cycle season. For those who don't understand what happens in Washington, this is when everybody takes vacation. This is when all the news outlets rerun stuff, and they come up with stuff like uh, Tom Hanks is the '90s, and they recycle that every five minutes. This news cycle this summer has been chock full. We go away for two weeks. And all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Where do we even start? Uh, let's start with uh, what happened yesterday. Uh, yesterday evening, the President of the United States unveiled his new Asia policy as it relates to Afghanistan uh, and the region. Many, many people who've seen it are being quite positive in many aspects, including some Democrats who've said positive things about the appearance of the president. Let me start with you, uh, Admiral Ken. On, as a whole, is what we saw out of Donald Trump yesterday in his speech at Fort Myers, or Joint Base Fort Myers, is that what we've been waiting for for the past 
say, almost nine months? Well, um, I suppose, but if you'll recall, he had a um, he had another major speech a few weeks uh, into his uh, his uh, his term as president that everybody thought was this is the point where he's made the pivot to become more presidential, and we're all sadly mistaken. Um, I can honestly say I think yesterday's or last night's speech had fingerprints of General John Kelly all over it. Um, I think uh, if we look at a sub, look at the speech from a substance perspective, um, the only thing that I really heard that was different uh, were two items. One, we are not going to have a time-based approach to what we do with uh, our troop assignments. We're going to let conditions on the ground dictate what we do and not telegraph uh, our movements. And I, 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 I must heartily agree with that aspect. Um, and the other thing that I heard was we're going to take a carrot and stick approach to dealing with Pakistan. Uh, the you know it's it's been known for quite some time that they have harbored. Uh, terrorist is where we 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 ultimately caught up with Osama bin Laden, and um, and they've been they've been uh, complicit in in harboring a, a good number of terrorists for for quite a while, and now we're looking at possibly holding back uh, some of the aid money that we've been giving them uh, to get better cooperation out of them. Other than that, uh, we're still in Afghanistan. Uh, the uh, you know the the Russians couldn't do it, and they're a lot. A uh, lot less kinder and gentler than we were. Uh, Alexander the Great couldn't do it, uh, and he was even less kinder and gentler than the Russians. Uh, I'm not entirely sure um, that this particular strategy is not going to be uh, met with the same um, the same outcome. Uh, and my fear is, and I said this last night when we were watching this, I think this war just went from 16 to 20 years. Um, I think that it, you know, I heard one of the other uh, commentators, I think may have been on CNN last night, liken this to Korea, where we basically, we don't declare a victory, but we have a presence there to, to keep things tamped down. And that may be possibly the most uh, accurate estimation of where we are in Afghanistan that I've heard so far. Sharmila, uh, Sharmila, we, we, we know that Afghanistan has been a problem for presidents on both sides of the aisle. It was a problem for George W. Bush. It continued to be a problem for uh, Barack Obama and now for Donald Trump. Uh, what you heard from the president last night, which has, in fact, received some positive reviews from some very hawkish Democrats, is what you saw last night giving you some resemblance of hope that we might actually see something if not presidential, but something at least statesmanlike out of Donald Trump? You know, I kind of have to disagree with the Admiral with all due respect. Yes, um, you know, I think the, the best thing you could say about that speech was that he didn't, he didn't endorse some sort of completely ill-thought-out withdrawal from the region, which would have plunged it into, into instability. But I think that's about all the points that you can give him. Uh, to the extent it sounded presidential, I honestly thought that it sounded like a bunch of talking points from his advisors that he just mashed together without really any rhyme or reason, because so much of it was just contradictory, right? He talked about, you know, he acknowledged that political vacuums create instability and allow terror groups to, to grow and to, to breed. And yet then two seconds later, he said that the U.S. would not 
you know, continue to participate to help build democratic institutions or help train on good governance. You know, on one hand, he said that um, he says that we won't be, you know, continuing to nation build, but yet we'll still be contributing contributing to economic development of the region. And, you know, on a sort of more political note, I think at the beginning of his speech, he was really trying to still continue to mop up the Charlottesville mess by talking about his respect to the soldiers and how soldiers transcend all, you know, races or nationalities or creeds to really come together as one cohesive unit and fight for our country. But again, that sort of undercut when you think about the fact that a month ago, he arbitrarily announced a ban on transgender soldiers. So I... I'm not as hopeful as, you know, some hawkish Democrats are that the president's speech indicates that he really understands the kind of complexities and the great challenge that's really ahead of us still in Afghanistan. Alan Moore, what say you? Well, uh, Sharmella reminds us that in the, in the eyes of Democrats, no good deed will ever go unpunished. I mean, nobody... <laughs> believes that President Trump has suddenly changed his spots, um, if only. Um, He will almost certainly uh, shift gears again tonight and go political, go rogue. Who knows whether what he's going to do in Arizona at this big political gathering, um, what Republicans he's going to trash. But to say that there was nothing in the speech, (laughs) it strikes me as as sort of blind anger at a guy who, let's acknowledge, uh, has, has earned some, some of that kind of feeling. But he was a guy who wanted to get out of Afghanistan. He talked about, here's a man who's not used to saying, um, uh, you know something, I changed my mind. You know something, when you're in the Oval Office, it's different. Good God, he should have been saying that months ago. At least he said it now. He said it once. I don't know that he'll ever say it again. I, I'm hopeful that he might say it every now and then. I don't think he's suddenly changed 180 degrees, but he stuck to his script. He read it in a way that made you think that, that, that he was embracing it, not with the kind of enthusiasm that he embraces some of his the crazy stuff he says off the cuff, but... He gave it. It wasn't. He didn't divert anywhere into into uh, strange political things. He uh, he didn't have applause lines for a, obviously uh, uh, a friendly audience of of, uh, of military personnel. Um, I do agree with Sharmella about the how bizarre it was for him to say to talk about unity and sense of combined purpose on the heels of this grotesque um, uh, and and damaging comment about transgenders. Um, But, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy to give him credit when it's due. I don't give him much credit, um, but because in my judgment, he hasn't earned much. But in this particular case, I thought it went well last night. I'm glad he stuck to the script. I think the, he acknowledged that you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And hello, world, uh, this is how it works in foreign affairs. He, of course, doesn't want to say my my policy isn't that different 
from uh, that of President Obama other than uh, that I'm not going to set a timetable. As, as Ken accurately pointed out, we're going to let conditions on the ground determine things. So as far as I'm concerned, this was a pretty decent speech, reasonably well delivered. Um, and uh, so it, it got and deserved, uh, I think, some, uh, some compliments. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see what he says tonight. We'll see what he does down the road. We'll see whether he sticks to uh, what he's saying about uh, Afghanistan. But I think that in this particular case, the generals, one, Bannon is gone out the door. uh, And uh, Kelly and McMaster and Mattis, um, uh, who've been pushing for some sustained presence in Afghanistan have prevailed. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the Bannon departure later in the show. But, uh, Dan Lipner, what what are your thoughts? Well, Allen has given uh, President Trump the participation trophy for his speech yesterday. Um, there, <laughs> there, wasn't, there, there wasn't much news as far as the actual Afghanistan policy itself. But the news Trump did make in his speech is actually more troubling and considering he has let's kick off the three countries he named uh, none of which have ambassadors uh, Afghanistan or at least no named ambassadors from this administration they all have acting ambassadors so Afghanistan, India and Pakistan none of which have had ambassadors named nor is there a a secretary for near, excuse me, not near Eastern affairs, uh, the the South and Central Asian affairs uh, at the State Department for that diplomacy thing. And by the way, the bringing India into the mix and Pakistan by tweaking their nose, you know, these are countries that kind of have their own issues. And for those of our listeners who are unaware there's not just a Muslim Christian thing going out out there. There's also a Muslim Hindu thing going on out there. And the president bringing India into the mix the way he did is seems politically unwise to say the least, at least at that kind of level as for a national address. Um, I'd be wildly curious to see if there was any greasing of the the skids at all from the State Department prior to that address uh, between the Pakistanis and the and the Indian governments that this was coming. I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, uh, but it, that's to be seen. I have I, I don't think anything he said yesterday did much of anything. I agree with Sharmila that he it, the speech was internally inconsistent. And while the participation trophy is nice, even the folks who said it was eloquent, I thought it was written in crayon. It was talking point. Nothing terribly meaningful there other than he was saying he was going to throw more good money after bad into Afghanistan. I think we needed a Gerald Ford looking looking at Vietnam, not MacArthur looking at, looking at Korea in this case. But that's just me. Well, Sharmila, go ahead. Sure, I'll keep it short. Uh, what I thought was interesting, um, you know, going off of Dan's last point, is that I really don't think, you know, as much bipartisan praise as this speech has received, I really don't, when you read through it, when you read the transcript, I don't think that it was really meant for a larger audience. I think just like most things Donald Trump talks about and sort of his most sort of 
eloquent, passionate speeches. This is really meant for his face. He, you know, the way, the simplistic way in which he talked about the war in Afghanistan and his reasoning behind why, you know, why he's not calling for withdrawal, why he changed his mind. The language is so simplistic in terms of, you know, stating fact that, you know, anyone who studied international relations or follows politics or even read an article in The Economist would know immediately. Um, but I think that this speech did have power and it resonated with his base and kind of explained to them in a much more obvious way why he wasn't, uh, why he couldn't follow through on one of his, you know, biggest campaign promises right now. And, you know, I, think I would echo that when, what he spoke about with India, where he talked about, you know, India has this massive trade, you know, trade advantage over the U.S., so they should be helping out with, with the costs, defraying the costs in Afghanistan, right? Like, those two right. things don't make sense together, but to his base, that's an argument that resonates. But, Sharmila, let, let, I mean, let's talk about the substance of the, of the speech itself. I mean, there, there, there are many people that are scratching their head this morning. I, I want to talk to you about the situation. Uh, number one, bringing India into an already tense situation with what we've called previously an ally in Pakistan is is that literally kicking sand in the face of a moderately allyish country in uh Pakistan or is this really uh you know drawing a line in the sand for lack of a better term uh to the Pakistani government saying either get on board or you're going to have a really bad day Actually, so I would agree with Alan here that this is a part of the speech that I actually think Trump played properly. I do think, right, you know, for all the foreign aid and, you know, other aid, development aid that the, uh, that the U.S. has given Pakistan, there's still a huge contingent of their government that is continuing to harbor and support these extremists. And so, yes, I think a little more of a stick approach is necessary. And I think potentially getting India involved, even if, you know, even if India, you know, that doesn't that ignores the question of whether or not India is willing to get involved because that's a separate question entirely. But even sort of, I think the hint of you know saying that we're going to bring India in and we're going to you know by a renewed and strengthened in U.S.-India alliance, we can potentially shift you know the balance of power even more towards India in this region. I think that that could be enough of a stick for the Pakistanis to maybe you know get their act together a little get their act together a little bit more. Alan Moore, I mean, are, are, are we looking too much into this Pakistani-India involvement in Afghanistan? I, I mean, is this a smart move or an overcalculated risk by the Trump administration? Well, I, you know, I, I am no expert on this stuff, as, uh, and, and as we've heard from Dan's remarks, he isn't either. Um, <laughs> but, but I... But I like what Charlotte had to say, and I was listening to several people this morning who actually know a lot about this stuff, uh, saying that, uh, expressing the view that it's past time that we don't have all of our cards in in the Pakistan basket because they have turned out to be such incredibly unreliable partners. Um, and yes, India and Pakistan have major massive tensions, and yes, there are risks in stirring up the Pakistan-India plot, but there are massive risks in 16 years of, of sad history now in, uh, in Afghanistan with untold numbers of years in front of us 
I'm tending to to see more, not that I like the idea, uh, longer than four-year kind of presence there, whether it's another South Korea situation or not, I don't know. But what we're trying to do is maintain some level of stability in Afghanistan so that it doesn't explode on us and become still again a bigger harboring ground of terrorist effect, of, ter- of terrorist activity, terrorist foundational support. And it, the problem with any investment like this over the long term is we'll never know what would have occurred had we gotten out of there. We watched what happened in Iraq, and I don't think there are many people anymore who say, yeah, pulling out of there, that was a great idea, uh, announcing our plans and then getting out. Um, in the case of Afghanistan, where there's a long history of, uh, of, of harboring terrorist activity, um, we're, we're, kind, we're, just, we're just kind of stuck. And it is a case where we at least have some allies, some other countries who are, are providing some additional support. And hopefully, if the U.S. increases its troop levels uh, by about 50 percent, I think, up by around 4,000 people, that, that, uh, that some of our allies will, will do the same. There is some with speculation that uh, hopefully we've laid the groundwork for some of that with those allies. The world cares about, about, harb- uh, about harboring terrorist cells because, as we see with what's going on in Europe and elsewhere, we're all at risk. Admiral Ken, when we, when we look at this from a military aspect, uh, the, the president would not commit to the number of troop build-out that's going to happen as a result of this, continuing his – his mantra of we're not going to telegraph our play. However, the estimates coming out of people I've talked to in the administration over at the Pentagon say it could be as high as 7,000 even. Uh, Are we just piling on more to a situation that's unattainable or is, is this the strategy needed as difficult a pill as it is to swallow? We have to admit we screwed up the end game after the Russians, after the Mujahideen beat the Russians. We screwed up that end game. Are we trying not to replicate that here? I think that not only that we are not, we're trying not to uh, replicate that, but we're also, as Alan uh, very aptly pointed out, um, we're also looking at what we did, what happened when we pulled out of Iraq, and if if that doesn't scare. Uh, anybody, then I, I want whatever they're taking, and I'm hoping it's cheap, plentiful, and doesn't show up in a drug screen. The fact of the matter is, um, this this the situation in Afghanistan uh, has not gotten demonstrably better uh, in quite some time. We've been through a number of surges, all of them announced, um, and I think that the belief of the planners is that. Um, we can conduct operations, even large-scale operations, uh, without tipping our hands, and that being a much more effective way of, of, uh, of gaining some ground in this war. Notice I said gaining some ground, not winning. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I, try to, I try to be a student of history where I can, um, especially where use of, uh, use of force is involved. And as I pointed out at the top of this, 
um, Alexander the Great, the Russians, uh, all of them got left left hole in the bag on that one, and I don't see us doing a lot better. Um, I will take note, uh, take issue with the fact that I, I did not give President Trump an A. Uh, I did not give him a B. Uh, I said that if you're anyone waiting, if you're someone waiting or saying that this is the pivot, I point you back a few months to the last big speech that he gave. He can momentarily turn on the charm and the presidential uh, appearance, but it doesn't seem to be something that, that sticks, and I don't look forward to do so in the near term. Yeah, Dan Lintner, we've heard a lot about uh, you know, having a long-term presence in Afghanistan. President Trump in his speech yesterday also kind of hinted at the successes that might be happening within the central government uh, in that country under the leadership of President uh, Ashraf Ghani. Are we, the, the question I keep hearing here in D.C. is we're putting too much faith in President Ghani. He's no different than any of the others. Is is that unfounded faith, or is this a guy that could be the future of the Afghan central government? Well, a couple things. First, while we're talking about the numbers, the as many as 7,000 more troops, arguably bringing us up to 14, let's just call it 16,000, just to be generous, uh, and maybe adding a few thousand more NATO troops on, on, on top of that. Um, we couldn't win Afghanistan when we had more than 100,000 troops in country. So we're saying 20-some-odd thousand is going to win the day? Come on. Um, as far as the Afghan president, either current or past, it's not entirely clear that Afghanistan is a nation state, meaning the president of Afghanistan's power going out beyond Kabul is not entirely clear. So acting as looking at the Afghan president as the final authority for his country is suspect. And this goes to Ken's point where failures have been going on for hundreds of years for outside forces going into Afghanistan. The basis, basis of Afghanistan is folks that want to be left alone from outsiders and they will fight to turn them away. Um, it's, it's not quite clear to me. And this supposedly the story from, from the white house or from what the president kept asking is what does victory look like? That's a worthy question. And if mm -hmm. it's just Afghanistan not producing terrorists that go outside of its own borders, that might be the, the essence of a win in which case it's an issue of containment, not actual winning on the ground. And to Dan, and to Dan's point, you know, the, the part of part of the discussion today has been the creation of, of of conditions that would allow the government, such as it is of 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 Afghanistan, to sit down and negotiate with the Taliban. You know, four years ago, the even thought, even the discussion of that in the Pentagon was unthinkable. We're going to negotiate with these guys? Are you kidding me? And now. With that, what I think that shows is a is a gradual realization of the fact that um, that 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 Afghanistan really is not a nation state; it is a collection of tribes. And the president of Afghanistan, his reach, you know, is probably about maybe five or ten miles outside of the city limits of Kabul, and that's about it. After that, it becomes no man's land. And whoever the tribal chieftain is that happens to control that area, that's the guy that you've got to go and talk to. 
And he may I mean, or may not be he may or may he may or may not be friends with Taliban people. In most cases, in a lot of cases, he is. Yeah, but but uh, Sharmila, we're literally inserting a nation state possible time bomb in between two nuclear powers that already don't like each other. That to me sounds like a formula for a powder keg that could get out of control very quickly. I agree. I mean, I think the the party that sort of has the most to lose in this uh, in that entire powder keg is India, right? If they open up themselves to to exposure to Afghanistan, you know, then they expose themselves. You know, in the long run, a stable Afghanistan is obviously, you know, something desired by everyone in South Asia. But in the short term, they open themselves up to far more security risks and the potential for much more terrorism and you know much, many more attacks on their own soil. Alan Moore, do you agree with that assessment? Well, I I, I think I do. I think that that uh, uh, that that is one of many risks that uh, have existed and that will exist going forward. Um, it's 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 a new it's a new emphasis. It's not a totally new element, but a new a new emphasis. And none of these anything new, anything old is is not without risk. I, I wanted to say one thing. Um, Dan was talking about how we couldn't win with 100,000. How can we win with uh, going from uh, 10 or 12 to 15 or 16? Um, we're, we're, we're trying to do something different now. We, we scaled back uh, during, during uh, uh, the Obama administration from that 100,000 uh, peak where we thought uh, – uh, as others have in history, that that we, we if we put enough manpower in there, we really can con- take control and can and change things. And we were in a quagmire, and it took us uh, a long time to get into it. And 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 we we greatly reduced right. our role. But in the in the doing in the doing, we spent an enormous amount of resources um, building up the capacity of the Afghan forces. Um, and we took them from next to nothing to, I don't know, something. You know, not very much, not enough. Um, and now I think that the, the, the whole notion behind uh, adding some troops there is to increase our capability, in, increase our ability to help and support and teach and train um, the, uh, the Afghan forces. It's by no means uh, any kind of guarantee of success. And I know there were right. voices in the administration that we should put even more people in there. Um, right. But we're, we're not trying to do today with eight to 10,000 up to 15 or 16,000, what we were trying to do years ago with a hundred thousand different mission right. success. Right. Who knows? Well, we're going to keep – this is obviously something we're going to be keeping an eye on, but we're coming up on the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do a deep dive in what happened over the past two weeks that we were kind of on summer vacation, summer hiatus, uh, everything from Charlottesville to the changes in the White House to uh, President's, President Trump's flip-flop. It's going to be a detailed, in-depth discussion when we come back. But as a reminder, this is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio from your nation's capital, Washington, D.C., or at least around the national capital region. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This 
is Backroom Politics. Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. you've never heard of it is backroom politics live on block talk radio as you do hear it every tuesday uh we've been gone for the past uh we didn't obviously have a show last week we've been gone for the past two weeks but a lot has happened in that time particularly over the past 10 to 12 days uh and we wanted to take a deep deep look at that uh let's start off with the the tragic events that happened in uh charlottesville Virginia uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, for those who don't know, a alt-right Nazi sympathizer, white supremacist, 
fringe groups gathering occurred down in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was quickly met with uh, a resistance or, an, or a counter-protest march that happened over the Friday and Saturday leading into the weekend. And it quickly became not only uh, very violent, but it became deadly. Uh, a young woman from Central Virginia lost her life when a white supremacist drove his car down a crowded walkway pedestrian area in downtown Charlotte, injuring as many as t- over 20 and killing one. Uh, also that weekend, while the surveillance was going on, two Virginia State troopers lost their lives while responding to the violence over the weekend. Number one, obviously, those who lost their lives, our thoughts and our prayers go out to their families for their loss. Uh, But the violence and the message that came out of Charlottesville was not only reprehensible, but it is something that, at least in my opinion, I thought as a nation that we would never see in my lifetime after so many Americans fought and lost their lives in World War II trying to keep language and symbolism like that from taking over the world. Absolutely, absolutely troubling events that happened there. Following that, the President of the United States gave a speech that was morally ambiguous at best but absolutely showed no leadership at all at worst. Uh, It then spiraled into many in his own party calling for the president to kind of show some leadership, call out, you know, the KKK, call out the Nazis, uh, the white supremacists by name, and, and, and say that this will not stand in this country. He kind of did that, that following Monday, and then on the next day, not 24 hours later, in a presser in, in the lobby of Trump Tower, he starts with his, there are good people on both sides, and starts going on a rant that nobody understands, further dividing the country. So with that baseline... Uh, let me start uh, – I, I got to start with you, Admiral Ken. The, the past – how troubling to you as an African-American, as a former na- – as a retired naval senior officer, how troubling has the past 12 days been in your eyes with the results of what happened in Charlottesville and the fallout? So uh, I've made the comment to uh, wife and family and friend alike that it really kind of blows me away <clears throat> that in 2017 um, this this is still an issue. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Don't 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 take from that comment that I thought until that issue uh, occurred in Charlottesville that we were living in a post-racial nation. Don't believe that at all. Again, no. I think that with everything that that we that this country has been through, 
um, it just blows me away that in 2017 this is still an issue. My mother, um, my mother, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, Justin, but my mother was in the uh, the Birmingham riots. Um, there is a picture of her uh, cowering under a stoop uh, from a police and a p- policeman and a police dog in a museum in Memphis, Tennessee. So my family, you know, um, has been, I guess, uh, I guess, participants in, in uh, and observers of, um, of of the racial animus that goes on in this country um, almost uh, my entire life. Matter of fact, the first time I was uh, under fire was when I was three years old living in Bessemer, Alabama, and somebody did a drive-by on my parents' house. So, again, um, this is not something that's, that, that, that is new to me, but I think, if nothing else, uh, it's, it's, it's basically, I think, a heads-up to a lot of people who thought that we were past this. The one thing I will say, though, that, that I have found somewhat uh, gratifying has been just the course of people on both sides of the political aisle uh, and, and all just about all walks of life who basically stood up and said, this is wrong. This will not stand. Uh, as late as last night, I watched Paul Ryan uh, in his town hall from, uh, from Racine, Wisconsin, uh, say exactly the same thing. Uh, conversely, am I surprised at the comments of the president um, on his first and his, 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 uh, his second speech? Or his third speech. I'm losing count now. Not at all. First I don't and think, third. Yeah. First and third. I don't think I don't. I'm not at all. I'm not at all surprised by that. Uh, I think that um, his, his 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 the comments his life that he's led in New York prior to him becoming a politician. I think some of the people that he has brought into his inner circle uh, in the White House all give credence to the fact that this is a 70 year old man who is marred. In 19th and early 20th century thinking of, uh, and with the exception of a few people that he's, quote, gotten to know because I think he likes to say, I can't be a racist because I've got some friends that are black. Um, I think this is who this guy is. I think it is, it, is, it is part of who he is, and if we're looking for it to change, I think we're fooling ourselves. Hello. <laughs> so let, no, I'm, so I'm back. Me, I'm, back. Me, I'm, yeah. I'm back on the yeah, Go ahead, me, Alan Moore, though. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up. Ken, Ken left out one word of description in talking about his his family's history, and it, 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 I know it was an oversight. He was saying that they had been participants and observers, and 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 I'm sure he would agree and and have hundreds of examples. They were and have been victims um, uh, of, of this grotesque, sad, sordid uh, piece of American history. Um, and, and most white Americans see it from an academic standpoint or from an observational standpoint. We, we, we don't know what it feels like. We can think about it, talk about it, read about it. We, 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 we cannot internalize it. Um, sometimes we say on the show, gee, we, we need some, some uh, before Ken ever came on board, uh, we need an African-American voice here. And he brings uh, credence and credibility. It's not that we can't understand it and talk about it. We didn't live it. 
we don't right. live it. And it's not Alan, a past tense. We don't Alan, live it. Yeah. No, sure. you're absolutely right. But let me jump in here real quick. I mean, no, let, let Ken me jump in. I thought that was Ken jumping in. I'm not. No, done no, yet. no, no, no. I, 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 I just want to jump in real quick and say this is and that, let me be clear. OK, the, the president should and continue to disavow and condemn the actions of white supremacists, all, you know, alternative right organizations, KKK, anti-Nazi, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but let me jump in. Is the media and the public being too harsh on President Trump for not disavowing enough, or in fact, did he fall short in saying what he did over the past week and trying to make up yeah, that yeah. ground? Are you asking me that? I'm asking Alan first, and then I'm going to go to okay. you, Ken. Yeah. So, yeah, he came up woefully short. What he did was, and you mentioned it at the beginning, and we all saw it. Some of us were watching on Saturday. I'm seeing this, the, these skirmishes, people beating the hell out of each other, using, using sticks and so on, carrying shields, having helmets. And I'm saying, first off, where are the police? They are <laughs> any, <laughs> any city that has dealt with this kind of thing knows that you don't let the, the two sides come face to face. You're on this side of the street, you're on this side of the street. That was my initial reaction. Then I was watching um, weaponized people on both sides, okay? So, so I'm thinking, wow, I, hadn't, I wasn't really aware of the Antifa, the anti-fascist group of, of uh, the counter-protesting notions, who, uh, folks who say, we're not going to just stand by and... And, and care and, and, and be nice and lovely. It's a very small percentage of the folks. There were massive numbers of, of counter-protesters who were just there to make a statement, to make a moral statement. Now, here's my problem with what the president said, and here's what he deserves this heavy criticism for. By his lack of perspective, his, in effect, um, speaking in the same tone of voice about violence um, uh, on, on both sides. Um, forget the good people on both sides. If you were a person who just wanted to keep the Lee statue and you were there on Friday night, you watched these people walking around with uh, tiki torches and, and yelling, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil and other stuff. You got the hell out of there. I can't imagine that anybody who just felt like this was somehow uh, trying to change history would have wanted any part of that. Who knows? But here's my bigger issue when you think about this question of perspective. And I thought, what was going on in World War II that might be an interesting counterpoint? Well, Poland lost more Jews than anybody in World War II, almost more than two and a half million. When the Germans occupied Poland, they went in and ghettoized Jews in all the major cities, and they created in Warsaw the so-called Warsaw Ghetto, and they put about 300,000 people in the ghetto. After that, they started systematically moving them out, sending them to concentration camps, saying they were labor camps. We know what they were, were death camps. And when, when the population got down to 50 or 60,000 and they said, we want more Jews to come, we're going we're gonna to ship them out, 
By then, the occupants still remaining in Warsaw in the ghetto knew what was happening. They resisted. There were a few hundred who had a handful of guns, of rifles and pistols and grenades and Molotov cocktails. They resisted. They fought back. They killed 25 or 30 Germans. They injured maybe 100. All on the way to the Germans wiping out the remaining 16,000 or so uh, Jews who remained as they burned down the rest of the ghetto. Now, in Donald Trump's world, one has to wonder whether he would have said there was violence on both sides. <laughs> That's how it feels when I hear him say that with what I know happened in Charlottesville. That's why there's the outrage. It's not that he had no tidbit of fact. He did. This is sometimes what he does. He'll have a tidbit. But he will hugely exaggerate. And it doesn't fly. It doesn't work. In Charlottesville, it didn't work in the ghetto of Warsaw. Let me go to Ken. Hold on, hold on, Sharmila. Let me go to Ken. I, I will add this, and Alan, I think Alan, Alan quite eloquently um, stated stated the, the situation. I will add this, that um, the one thing I don't want, the one thing I don't want is for the discussion of the state of race relations in this country to get stepped on by some BS discussion as to whether Confederate uh, – Statues need to come down or stay up. I, I don't want that. That's a separate discussion in and of itself. Uh, the problem now is that uh, the president and many of his uh, supporters, um, uh, both uh, close supporters in the White House as well, and, and, and uh, the, uh, the the one more dist- the ones that are more distant, um, have have allowed these people to believe that it's okay for them to come out of the shadows, which is where they have been for quite some time. No one doubts that they were there, but this president, uh, this president, uh, a member of my party, somebody that I've taken, I mean, a party that I've taken more heat over about being a black Republican than you can possibly ever know. This president basically has stood up and allowed these people to come out into the open. And what needs to happen is I don't look for him to show any moral clarity. He's already shown who he really is, but I really would like the rest of this country uh, to basically uh, add their voices to shout this back down to where it needs to go. Dan Lipner, I was talking with uh, several. I, I was talking with several folks uh, over the past few days that I got back uh, from vacation about this particular subject, and several Republicans told me that they that Donald Trump's message was skewed by his poor choice of words. <laughs> what he should have said is if you are on the alt-right and you use violence in your cause, your cause of racism, bigotry, and the use of violence in that cause is absolutely wrong and you will be prosecuted and we will not stand for that. On the alt-left, If you use racism, if you use violence, if you use bigotry on your alt-left as part of your cause, we will not stand for that, and that will be prosecuted, and we will disavow that. 
if that had been his message from the beginning, that would that have withstood not only the criticism, but actually garnered support from the general public? Well, the short answer is yes. He would have followed the history of other presidents, but that's not who this president is. This president claimed not to know who David Duke was. This president has flirted with the edges of bigotry and flirted might be generous and calling it the edge might be generous consistently from his campaign to now his presidency. And to, to go, to even hint at that he's capable of going in a different direction and respond in anything other than how a petulant child would when he's made to apologize for his poor choices of words or poor actions. And when you're the president of the United States, your words are your actions matters. And looking at a, 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 a very simple line from an, from an odd source, Jimmy Kimmel in response to the Charlottesville, uh, both the actions and the words of the president said very simply, good people don't have Nazi friends. I'm pretty comfortable with that statement. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But uh, Sharmila, when we when we hear, and, and, and again, let me be clear. I personally, and I think everybody on the show, condemns the alt-right, condemns white supremacy, condemns the use of race, sexual creed, color, in, 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 as part of an agenda, and particularly using violence in, in pushing that agenda is, is reprehensible. But let me ask this. We've heard the condemnation, uh, even by Republicans, saying that the alt-right is absolutely persona non grata in our party. Should there be an equal response from the Democrats for the fringe alt-left that have some blame as to instigating some violence, according to many reports, should there be an equal response on the alt-left? Well, yes. The, the simple answer is yes. And I think that Democratic leaders have done a good job of saying violence is unacceptable no matter whom it's coming from. And, and further, in, in speaking out against the quote-unquote anti-fa movement, also standing up strongly for free speech. We don't agree with anything that these alt-right neo-Nazi KKK groups say, but we as Americans still must respect that we have a First Amendment and that censorship is also not our, our responsibility as American people. No one has the right to censor anyone else, even when you find their beliefs to be reprehensible. Justin. But I'd like to go back to Alan's point for one second, where he talked about the Polish resistance to Nazi occupation, and if Donald Trump had seen that, would he have spoken about violence on both sides? I think the honest answer is it depends which side was supportive of Donald Trump. Hmm. I honestly think outside of the racial, the inflaming of racial tensions the, and the moral equivalency that we heard from the president, in terms of equating neo-Nazis with counter-protesters and, you know, Alan and 
Admiral Ken so eloquently described already. I think what was more galling about, or equally galling, I should say, about the president's remarks on Tuesday were that you could really see that the most important things to him are not democratic principles. They are, one, not wanting to admit mistakes, no matter how egregious or how obvious the mistake is, and B, that the primary lens he views any issue through is how the how the parties view him, right? He created this moral equivalency because members of neo-Nazi alt-right groups have supported him, right? He knows he's not stupid. He understands that this these groups comprise a core voting block of his, and he doesn't want to alienate them. As much as he can say, I condemn their movement, I don't believe in this, I disavow David Duke, at the end of the day, he knows where his bread is buttered. And so you see that, that myopia coming front and center. And I think Admiral that, that in, in addition to everything Admiral that Ken. Alan described is just as disturbing. I got to say, uh, I, I heard a term get coined in the last week, week and a half or so that uh, initially caused me to flinch. And, um, and that, that reaction has not gone away. Uh, and the first time I heard this term was when the president was doing um, that abysmal presser in Trump Tower where he referred to people um, that were counter-protesting the Nazis and the white supremacists as the alt-left. Um, that, that term, that term, I don't like it. I, I, I have a visceral reaction to it. Why because, is that? Because, because I think it, 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 in, the, in the way that that term was um, um, brought into the, 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 uh, the discussion – uh, he done it. He did it in a way of making the people that were protesting against the Nazis and the white supremacists morally equal, and they weren't. And so he had to come up with a term that uh, was was that that spoke to that, that that equivalency. And I think that's where the alt left term came from. I don't think it's fair. Uh, you want to call him uh, uh, Antifa? That's fine. But I I think using that term alt left I think does a disservice. To what I think some of these people are standing for. Yeah, I agree with Sharmila. Everybody's got a right to say whatever they want to say, uh, up to the point where it causes violence. That's part of the uh, that's part of the Constitution that at least two of us on this on this call have uh, have fought for. But at the same time, I think we have to be very careful in in putting uh, good people on the same uh, on I guess in my mind on the same pedestal as as, as people who, who who don't deserve it. And Ken, I hear what Can you're I saying. Up but let on me ask, that? Hold on, real quick, Dan, because I, I, I want to ask Ken this question. I, I understand what you're saying, Ken, but let me go so far as to say, when you say the word alt left, I mean there has been fringe elements that have invoked violence. In their demonstrations before, we saw it during the inauguration of Donald Trump. Uh, we saw it particularly in the uh, in the use of violence in in the aftermath of the uh, police shootings in Dallas. 
that we saw in the aftermath of the police involved shootings in Missouri, you have to admit that there is, just as there is a fringe element on the right that invokes violence in the name of white supremacy, in the name of Nazi, in the name of fascism, there is an equal side fringe on the left that invokes the same thing, just polar opposite. And what did we call it them is, before two it weeks is ago? Not, it is not equal. It is not equal. It is not equal. That's, that's Ken's point. Ken's point, Ken is absolutely right. If you keep arguing with him, Justin, you're just hurting your own credibility. It's not equal. There's a, hand, there's a handful of folks on the left um, who, who espouse violence. There are large segments of these particular white supremacist, neo-Nazi, KKK groups, violence, armed force, is what they are all about. That's the problem with false equivalency, and you're falling into it. No, I'm asking. Well, first of all, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. Well, Alan, wait a minute, hold on. Let me just jump in real quick because I'm going. I'm going to step into that because Alan's calling me out on false equivalency. I am <laughs> asking a question, Alan. Okay, that is my job. You weren't asking a question. I, I am asking. <laughs> I was absolutely asking a question, Alan. That's my job. <laughs> You didn't ask a question. You didn't ask a question. You said there are left. There are groups on the left that are just as prone to violence. I asked the question. That's the false equivalency. No, no, no. If you if you heard the question correctly, Alan, and not use your own agenda on this, I what I asked (laughs) is my agenda. Does anybody else agree with Justin? I didn't. You, wait a minute. You were saying that I made a Justin, statement, Justin. Justin, let me help you out here. Let me let me help yeah. you out here. So, <laughs> so, so while I, Alan is right, the false equivalency is is part of the the danger. And somebody coined the, another phrase: the the whataboutism. So the the you know the innocent the innocent Nazis that weren't suggesting violence that business. Um, but that's when we look back at history and Ken had kind of highlighted this with his own family, that the difficulty and the narrow path you walk when fighting these kind of ideas, that the nonviolence movement for civil rights was so careful about because those people who were involved in the movement knew that it could be a thousand to one ratio, but all it took was one, one picture, one statement, one story. And to know that that, that the most cynical amongst us, and unfortunately I put the president squarely in that cynical category, the most cynical amongst us will use that opportunity to misplay it. And say, you know, these are just the same thing. So this is actually a warning to friends of mine and people I respect on the left to be very careful that when we can't just say we're right and we actually have to do right and we have to be careful about it because if we do it wrong, there are consequences and the people who are cynical are going to exploit it. It is a hard, hard battle. But you can't do it willy-nilly, and you can't just shoot from the hip. 
it is and, a, and I'm gonna, this battle's not going to be won before a, any of us are done with our time on Earth, unfortunately. And, but we have to be careful on the fight. And I'm going to jump in here real quick, and, and I'm going to take off my Monterey hat and put on a commentator hat for a second, because here's my take is before I get accused or anybody accuses of false equivalency, I have been taught and I've learned through history. I've seen the pictures, I've seen the film, and I've heard the speeches of people like Martin Luther King who faced great amounts of terrible violence, who fought water hoses, who saw tear gas, who saw salt shots, who saw beanbag shots. And they took that and they did it peacefully And they did it in a way that did not invoke violence. That was not their style. And an entire civil rights movement did that. And now what we have are people that invoke the names of Dr. King, but still use violence as part of their objective. This is not false equivalency. This is What this is is exactly what Dan said is we need to, on both sides, let me be clear, and this is where I think that before I get accused of false equivalency, there is no room in this country for any sort of bigotry, racism, or any sort of white supremacy views in a country that literally fought to defeat that mindset. At the same time, no Americans... Regardless of political party, no Americans, regardless of color, regardless of creed, should invoke bigotry, invoke violence to promote their agenda. That's the bottom line. So whether you're left or right, conservative, liberal, progressive, whatever, there is no room in this country for the use of bigotry. There's no use in this country for the use of violence and the cause, the loss of life in getting your message heard because there's an entire generation of civil rights activists that brought forward a peaceful, peaceful movement that did not invoke violence. And that is the way that this country should invoke itself. Period. Bottom line. Dan, I'm sorry. Sharmila, you wanted to jump in on that. I did. Although I would point out that, even within the civil rights movement, there was, again, I'm not endorsing violence in any, any way, but even within the civil rights movement, there was a break between those parties, such as Dr. King, who wanted to pursue nonviolent resistance versus those who um, promoted violent resistance, like the Black militant resistance. And right. luckily, Dr. King's side won. Right. Uh, what I was going to say earlier was simply that when we were speaking about the moral equivalence, I think one large difference is that many of these alt-right protesters seem to be marching, seem to be taking their cues in the name of Donald Trump, whereas I believe that very few of these counter-left Antifa protesters are doing so in the name of, for example, Nancy Pelosi. You know, even the the shooter who, um, the alleged shooter of the uh, GOP congressman, he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And Bernie Sanders put out a statement within five seconds, disavowing him and disavowing the use of violence. Agreed. Agreed. Dan Lipner. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also worth noting, intent does matter. I mean, are, are, are we suggesting that pro-fascists and anti-fascists are really the same creatures? Um, <laughs> I mean, you can't completely – I mean, that's that false equivalency thing. Yes, violence is not – we do not accept that in a democratic country where part of the reason we – the First Amendment is the First Amendment is the democracy of ideas, and violence – is not how you win the day with ideas. And it's also worth noting, you can't kill an idea with violence. You win the day by the better argument and the way you deliver it and getting people to your side. And universally, or almost universally, most of the country came out on the other side and a majority of the Republican Party was the other side. So even calling it the alt-left, are you telling me Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are the alt-left for – even though they didn't go after the president by name, they did condemn his statement. So, I mean, it, it, this stuff say they're the same thing, and the president being so slow to get there is, is unfortunate. But I still stand by my statement that the left – and kudos to Bernie Sanders and many others on the left who quickly condemn violence. And worth noting, the Confederate statues and monuments that they want to come down, many of which are coming down democratically. The city of Baltimore, the weekend after, after Charlottesville, took several statues down in the dead of night. They were gone. The city council and the mayor just did it on their own. There is a way of doing this and that you can do it without violence. The mayor of New Orleans also very carefully handled it by taking down a, a series of Confederate monuments that were put there most directly in response to the, the, the freed slaves who were in positions of power in New, in New Orleans prior to the end of Reconstruction. There is a way of doing this, and you can have, win the civil debate in a civil manner. It's what this country is theoretically supposed to be about. Absolutely. Admiral Ken, last word to you. Well, I said I, I said at the uh, at the at the onset um, of my comments that I I don't I don't I want to keep the discussion about taking down Confederate statues in the state of race relations in this country uh, apart. I think they're two very separate discussions, um, and I, I'd like to reserve time on a later show. And I think we're probably going to have plenty of opportunity in the coming days and weeks uh, to do this. But I, I'd like to talk about. Um, the uh, the Confederate issue and the trampling of history argument uh, and the whole the whole uh, the whole quagmire uh, at some length. Um, yeah. I'll just say one thing. Um, you know the the thing that makes backroom politics a great show is that you've got you know mostly some pretty sharp people with the exception of Dan and me uh, <laughs> coming together <laughs> coming together. To talk about things, and we may disagree, but I think what's really, really great about our show is that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Right. That is true. That is true. Regardless, at the end of the day, that's something that we've always done is try and promote civil discourse, and at the end of the show, we can all still shake hands and, and walk away as friends. That I agree yep. with, Ken. Absolutely. That absolutely agree with. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the, what also happened as part of this. We're going to talk about the president fallout, and that includes saying adieu to one uh, Steve Bannon. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics live from the nation's capital region 
in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. you've never heard of it is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell, joining me as always on Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, Dan Lipner Esquire, and joining us from New York, our special friend, Sharma Achari. Uh, hey, we're going to talk about some of the fallout. We just got done having a uh, pretty in-depth discussion regarding the uh, the aftermath and, and what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. Uh, we're going to turn that around, and now we've got to talk about what happened at the White House while we were gone. Uh, some very, very big shakeups, some really big problems uh, in the aftermath of what can only be considered a public relations nightmare for 
the president and the administration, uh, there was a lot of tap dancing. There was a lot of damage control being done in the wake of the president's Tuesday tirade meltdown uh, that happened in Trump Tower after the events in Charlottesville. Uh, As a result, it seems like there might be some changes afoot in the administration. The big move was uh, last, uh, last Friday, Steve Bannon was, according to Steve Bannon, he left to go back to Breitbart. But uh, according to several I've talked to inside the administration, he was, in fact, fired uh, where General Kelly was put, uh, put the ultimatum to the president that it's him or me. And General Kelly prevailed. Uh, However it went down, it's still the departure of what can only be called a polarizing figure in the White House. Uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. There were rumors going around that, in fact, that a lot of the leaks that were coming out, particularly about uh, officials like uh, General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, uh, uh, Secretary Tillerson at State were in fact being leaked by Bannon and his staff. Right or wrong, is is there some sort of uh, discipline that is invoked by getting rid of Steve Bannon at the White House? I don't know um, whether discipline is the right word. I, I do think you're absolutely right uh, that that uh, uh, that that Kelly um, basically said, and he probably did this before he went in. He, he he before he agreed to take the job. He 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 got agreement from the president on several things, and some of it had to do with personnel. And my guess is that he said, "Look, I don't know Steve Bannon very well. I got a lot of questions about him. If he needs to go, are you gonna are you gonna back me up?" And it was probably that. Kind of thing, and then uh, over time, uh, not very much time, um, the president said, <laughs> "Yeah, um, we had lots of hints that this was going to happen." Um, not only Anthony Scaramucci talking about uh, uh, what Bannon uh, enjoyed doing to himself or trying to do to himself, um, <laughs> and and and. Uh, and then the president himself uh, just last week uh, in, a, in a speech uh, when asked about or in some impromptu remarks when asked about Bannon said, you know, he's he's a he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He came in kind of late on the campaign after after I sewed up the nomination, <laughs> which is if, if if that's your boss talking about you, watch out. Uh, get your resume up to speed. Um and then he said, you know, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Of course, the, the, the Scaramucci had already said, oh, yeah, he's going to go. But it's it's not up to me to say that. It's up to the president. This is his decision. It was all so clear. Now, the sad part for Bannon, uh, if, you know, who knows, is that he, but for Charlottesville, but for Charlottesville, he might have been able to, step out and step aside and and say you know my my role i've i've succeeded at doing what i wanted to do i knew this was was not going to be a a long-term deal and i'm going to help the president from the outside because of charlottesville and some interviews he did 
he did in and around Charlottesville, um, he further, in my judgment, um, disgraced himself um, when he, Bannon, for example, said um, this was the president was was exactly right. This was just the right, the correct response. Uh, His base loves this. And then something to the effect that as long as we have the Democrats talking about race, we win. Well, it's that kind of divisive thinking that is kind of uh, all about, quote, winning as opposed to serving uh, the interests of the country that so disgusted me about what I perceived about Bannon and what is so unfortunate about some of the president's instincts about win, 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 get tired of winning, um, what Bannon fed. So good riddance to him. And and uh, I, I don't think it was just Kelly. The, the, all the reports are that he was extremely divisive right. with, throughout the staff and had run afoul of both uh, uh, Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka. Um, right. and, 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 and that plus Kelly, it's, how, does the, how does the guy survive? I, I have well, a different me, take on this. Go ahead, Al, go ahead Admiral Ken. So I, I honestly think that, that – that, that, and this is based on a couple of tweets that, uh, that, that um, Bannon made about the fact that the White House that they thought that they had won, uh, it wasn't going to materialize. I think Bannon is a smart guy. I think he's possibly one of the most astute um, um, people uh, in this space that I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have seen since I've been paying attention. That's been about five or six years now. This guy knows what he's doing, and I think he really – I think he – I think the word that you like to use, Justin, is clown car. Uh, I think the word that I might use would, would, would be crap show. Uh, using a different expletive in front of the, the word show, and I think I think he saw I think he saw that coming, and I think I think he knows better at coming out of the media space than to engage a reporter uh, in a conversation on the phone without asking if this is off the record or not. I think so he saw. Think, I, hang on, hold, I'm getting there. I got. I, hang on, hang on. I, I, I'm calling. <laughs> I, I got a I got a label for this. It's called the mooch maneuver. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he pulled a mooch. He pulled a moochie, and and he said, "You know what? What is the fastest way to get on the get on get on Donald Trump's crap list?" And that's to basically say something negative about the president, do it to a reporter, and own up to it. And but that's Char- exactly what happened. And he's gone. But, but Sharmila, I mean, he came out swinging out of the White House. I mean, he basically said, and I quote. Uh, I when he talked about Breitbart and the media juggernaut that he thinks that it is, he <laughs> said I built a f word machine and I'm going to rev up this machine. He basically came out and said that the Donald Trump presidency is over, quote unquote. Is, is should the White House be afraid of Steve Bannon and Breitbart and what he is he's possibly capable of doing? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, to, and to to to, uh, to repeat what uh, Admiral Ken just said, you know, the notion Steve Bannon is one of the most media savvy people, you know, on the left or right side of the aisle in this country. The notion that he would speak to a reporter, um, you know, and not indicate a conversation off the record is already stretches the bounds of credibility. The fact that he would do it 
two weeks or three weeks after Anthony Scaramucci got fired for doing the exact same thing <laughs> is just ludicrous. So, I You've seen, yes, I mean, the, the White House absolutely has reason to fear Steve Bannon. You've seen already, he's, you know, the campaign that they coordinated against uh, General McMaster while Steve Bannon was ostensibly still a staff member of the White House. They've already run, you know, run critical articles about Ivanka Trump. Those articles are not going to stop. They've already criticized you know, within a few minutes of the president's Afghanistan speech. So the headline of Breitbart was essentially Trump betrays his core supporters by reversing course in Afghanistan. You know, at first, I really thought, you know, say, say what you will about the president. He truly is a master of the eye of Sauron. He is great at changing the headline when the headlines aren't going his way. Look at everything that happened with Mika Brzezinski. The news was all about the Russia investigation and the president's possible improper financial entanglements. He sends one or two tweets about Mika Brzezinski, 24 hours, that's all anyone talked about. And so at first, I really thought that, you know, that uh, Steve Bannon's firing was just a way to turn the media headlines and to make people stop talking about Charlottesville. But after what we've seen in the last couple of days since Mr. Bannon has left, I think that if there's going to be a real parting of the ways between the Trump White House and its quote-unquote globalist wing, Gary Cohen, Dina Powell, Javanka, as they're called, and the more far-right nationalist Steve Bannon wing. Are, are we, if, if, if Trump had gone to a real military school, he would know the saying, <laughs> keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> Dan Lipner, how dangerous yeah, so, Dan Lipner, how, how dangerous was Steve Bannon? And for every extent also, uh, his uh, his Igor to Bannon's Dr. Frankenstein, Sebastian Gorka, how dangerous are those two to the White House? And actually, how dangerous were they to the political environment in Washington? Well, let's break this up into a couple parts. So the just to Admiral Ken's point, and, uh, and this is a deliberate point, uh, Goebbels was a smart guy, too. Um, so, yes, Steve Bannon is media savvy and knows how to whip things up to a, a, a certain extent within a very small segment of the population. Unfortunately, that very small segment is also referred to as Donald Trump's base. So, the, just playing devil's advocate for the not-quite-god-awful, horrible stuff which the, Steve Bannon represented – so the, the racist, nationalists, all that garbage. There was one small element that Steve Bannon could claim arguably a higher ground, the working class, under, the underrepresented, underheard working class America, and un, unfortunately he would exclusively put it under working class white America, but nonetheless still underheard in Washington. Steve Bannon's departure from the White House is the entire departure of that voice in the White House. Steve Miller, the, the policy advisor who keeps making us laugh with, with every scary appearance he has in the press, uh, <laughs> his approach is, has none of the, the populism for working-class America, 
It has only the scary nationalist stuff that Steve Bannon had had with him, with none of the good stuff representing normal people. So don't forget the racism. And it's also worth noting Steve Bannon's packing heat. I mean, Breitbart does does have a have a viewership that that people listen to. I see the stuff all the time, and the stuff is crazy. But there are people out there listening to it, and those are Trump's people. So. Dan, yeah, is, is Sebastian uh, Trump screwed up? Is, is Sebastian Gorka's days numbered at the White House as well? Possibly. I mean, everyone's days are numbered in this White House. I, I, I wouldn't say nobody should be too cozy in their seats. Well, that brings up a that brings up a big point, and I want to go to this. Um, this morning, uh, Alan Moore, the New York Times, reported that apparently Mitch McConnell has said in private circles that this presidency is unsalvageable, and in fact that he and the president have not spoken in weeks. That is according to the New York Times. Should that give Republicans on the Hill reason to pause and rethink how big their support to Trump should be? Well, it's not... the, the, The... the answer to your question is yes, they should be rethinking it, but it not not because of a report about whether Trump and, and McConnell are talking, but because of, of the president's behavior. Um, uh, Charlottesville, interestingly, um, seemed to uh, to push re- a, 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 another group of Republicans forward in. Um, in really calling out the president uh, and and calling on him to be clearer in his denunciation of white supremacist groups, neo-Nazis, uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan, um, and and uh, that 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 last week saw several senators who have not heretofore been public uh, become public. The relationship, but it wasn't because of, of McConnell uh, or McConnell and Trump's relationship, which is in a very bad place. Um, it, we all had to, to, to just a slight diversion here when the president gave his bizarre remarks uh, the other day, completely rendering irrelevant and useless his statement about Charlottesville from Monday, which was more balanced and measured, even though it didn't come across as heartfelt. And then he completely undid it the next day. But he undid it at a at a meeting, supposedly a press briefing on infrastructure. And next to him was not only uh, the 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 very dis- disappointed new chief of staff John Kelly, whose whose efforts at, at uh, discipline were obviously falling away in front of his eyes. Uh, a, a couple of senior advisors who happened to be Jewish. Uh, who are sitting there appalled that he would walk away from the remarks of of a day before where he finally called out these neo-Nazis. And then you have, to the president's left, Elaine Chao, the Secretary of Transportation, who he's talking about in glowing terms as key to this infrastructure, who happens to be married to the self-same Senator Majority Leader uh, from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell. You know, you 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 can't make this stuff up. But that imagery was was particularly stark. 
the relationship between those two guys is not good. Uh, McConnell made it, it's hard to you know McConnell is a very smart guy and he rarely makes mistakes. I've seen him do what I consider to be uh, you know a, a couple of, of of uses of words that didn't work to his advantage. And I think that when he accurately made these comments back in Kentucky about how the president. Uh, didn't come up learning this uh, uh, this Washington business and has got a few things to learn about what it takes and how long it takes to do things. All that did was outrage uh, the president and some of his followers. I don't think that was the that was McConnell's intent. Um, it's hard to know because usually he knows what he's doing. But even if it's accurate, those guys are not getting along. The president can help. The president needs to be a partner. Everybody's angry at Mitch McConnell because he couldn't deliver the Senate on a, on a, on a repeal and replace Obamacare bill. That was nothing more than a placeholder. Um, and, and blaming McConnell, but taking no responsibility himself for his failure to do anything useful, helpful, and credible with the wavering Republican senators. Um, McConnell might have been able to pull that off with some help from the president rather than him getting his own way and stepping on himself and harming Republican efforts. I never liked the Republican efforts very much, I I, I should repeat, but uh, you can't just lay it all on McConnell. Sharmila, is is Paul Ryan literally – holding on by fingernails in supporting uh, President Trump, or did we see a a shift from that in last night's town hall that he had on CNN? Sadly, no. I would say if there's any silver lining from the awful past two weeks is that Senate Republicans really stepped up. You see senators like Bob Corker and Orrin Hatch, who are not known as moderates or even never Trump, Senators, Bob Corker was obviously an active supporter of his throughout his campaign, but to see them step up and really call out the president and explain why his comments were so abhorrent was very heartening to me. And I would hope that the House leadership looks to the leadership of the Senate and follows their example. So far, I have not seen Paul Ryan demonstrate that same type of moral courage. He has had multiple, multiple opportunities to call out the president on his false equivalencies and his, you know, and his outrageous statements in the wake of Charlottesville. And he hasn't, I, I can't quite recall the, the reaction, but I almost, I almost feel that, um, that Speaker Ryan's reaction to the Access Hollywood tape was stronger than anything he's, than anything he's done since Donald Trump has actually been president. And Admiral Ken, not, not to, Actually, I should probably not use this analogy, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Uh, is this, in fact, a sinking ship that cannot be saved? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that, you know, all kidding aside, I, I, I have, I, you know, on, on the night that Donald Trump was elected, my father passed. And I have I have I have watched I have hoped and I have prayed that this man would step up and he would start doing and saying the right things 
to justify um, the, 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 um, the faith that all of those voters put in him. But at the end of the day, um, I don't think that, that that's, that's happened, and I don't think it's going to happen. And when I, think about, um, when I think about last night's speech and us getting ready to commit more troops in Afghanistan, when I think about um, the, uh, the challenges that the, uh, the, 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 the one-upsmanship that we're trying to do verbally with North Korea, uh, when I think about um, the, the state of the, uh, the, of the U.S. military uh, equipment and, and some of the training issues that we have that got highlighted the other night by a possible um, – uh, by another collision, possibly highlighted by another collision. I think about all the things that need to be done, let alone – the uh, the bringing together of the country to you know uh, that uh, over some of the racial stuff that we talked about in the last segment, I think we really really need to get a steady hand on the wheel as soon as possible. And I just I, I just I, I don't see it happening. And I think you know I hate to put the country through it, but you know this is a really strong country. I'm young enough to I'm old enough for that is to remember um, the uh, the Nixon. Uh, impeachment trials and his his resignation. The country survived it, and it was better for it. And I, I'd like to see the same thing happen here. Well, what is the yeah. straw that breaks the camel's back? Can I just ask? Because we've been through this cycle before, where there's some scandal, people speak out against the president, but nothing changes. And I believe if House leadership and if if House if majority of Republicans in Congress aren't willing to actually take a stand against him. How is anything going to change? Well, Alan Moore, I, I pose that question to you because Sharmila Char- uh, brings up a very valid point. If we go back in history and we look at the departure of President Nixon, it wasn't the articles of impeachment that forced his hand. It was the House and Senate leaders that went into the Oval Office and said, we just cannot support you anymore. Is that a that. No, 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 that. no, you're wrong. Alan, you're, you're, Alan you're wrong there. Yeah, it, 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 what what happened was that the senators, uh, it was a group of senators um, that that were that were key, not not least of all Barry Goldwater, when they were finally confronted with um, the uh, the so-called smoking gun tape that made it crystal clear that the president had had been participating almost from day one in the cover-up and his own involvement, and then denying it, lying about it again and again and again for a year and a half. Once the contents of that became known to Barry Goldwater and others, they went to the president and said, you cannot survive impeachment. And, and you can't survive it with me. And if you can't survive it with me, you can't survive it with the United States Senate. And that was the ultimate thing that that broke uh, that that broke Nixon. He was going through his own uh, denial and depression and so on. It wasn't that they lost faith in him, if you will, as president or confidence. Not that they were feeling great about him, because he was getting he was acting more and more bizarre. But it was it all had to do with them saying, "You will not survive impeachment, and if you're impeached, you lose." Everything, including pension, um, uh, lifetime payments, staff, and so on. Um, so it, it it was probably a little bit like Bannon claiming to have uh, resigned when it was so clear that he was fired. Um, uh, the, the the president uh, 
was, for all intents and purposes, impeached. He stepped down in order to 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 save now, himself and his family. Alan, let, let me jump in real quick and ask you this question: Is yeah. that a is what you just described that happened with Nixon? Is that plausible? Is that scenario plausible in today's realm? With the Trump administration and the current relationship he has with the Senate, could we see that same scenario play out with or without uh, articles of impeachment? No. See, that, that's the that's the difference with 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 Nixon. That you know, Nixon was going to be uh, tried for uh, high crimes and dis- misdemeanors, all of which are in the eye of the beholder, uh, frankly. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you could steal or murder or whatever that that would that, that would also be a crime. But but uh, uh, it, he knew he was going to be impeached, and he was going to be impeached on the grounds of basically colluding in um, uh, this uh, the break in and the cover up uh, and lying about it over and over again. I don't see a comparable high crime, if you will, and misdemeanor at this point with the president now. If we were to discover that uh, that he that he directly colluded with the Russians on the election, if we were to discover that he learned about uh, his son-in-law directly colluding and decided to cover it up, I'm not saying those things happened. I don't think they did, frankly. But it would take something like that to to generate a Nixon-like parallel. Now the question is. If he loses the confidence of Republicans, if they begin to turn on him, if his if his uh, popularity, uh, sorry, popularity of his approval rating continues to fall. Um, uh, and it's not just the, the raw numbers when people say, well, he's down to 34 percent, 36 percent. Well, how high was it ever in terms of true approval? This problem mm-hmm. From, an, mm-hmm. from a reelection standpoint, is not overall uh, because down in many southern states he hasn't lost much of anything. But if you look at what's happened to him in the key states that brought him victory, the the that Michigan, Pennsylvania, the, the Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Ohio, <laughs> right, right. That's where that's where he's lost the twenty plus points. Um, he wasn't that popular to begin with, and he and he and he lost twenty. 20 plus points. So there's the reelection issue, but I'm not seeing grounds for impeachment. Um, he's not the kind of guy, he doesn't have the kind of personality that if he thought, you know, this has not worked for me, I'm, I'm feeling like I hate every day that I go to the office. Um, and who needs this stuff? Um, maybe I'll just resign. Like, like, like a few congressmen have done, right? They just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to leave. Presidents don't do that. But but, but presidents don't do a lot of things that Donald Trump uh, uh, has done. I think it would have to take something really weird and extraordinary like that or uh, a health episode. He's not a young guy, and he's not in right. fabulous shape. Or, and remember, remember the other I way that we can get rid of a president. He's in the best shape of anyone. We all need the name of that doctor because we want to be in better shape. Um, so, that'd be, that, that's so, the same doctor that gives me a clean bill of health. Right. There you go. So, yeah, I'm in so the best the, shape. But ever. remember, 
remember there's another way to get rid of a president, and that is if, if a majority of the cabinet uh, comes together and decides uh, that I think it's a majority um, that that he uh, he's he's incapable of fulfilling his duties and responsibilities. Um, I'm not seeing that happen, but but that's more likely at the moment, frankly, than impeachment because in, with, with impeachment you you really do have to you know to 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 make a powerful case that you that you're that you've broken the law, not that you're Alan, incompetent Alan, or make no sense. About- you're not talking about invoking the 24th Amendment, having the cabinet invoke the I 24th, am. are you? You are. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm not so, saying they're going to. I'm simply talking about the ways that you get rid of a yeah, president yeah, 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 before yeah. his term is up, and and that one I think would actually be. Not, I'm not saying it's likely at all. I'm just saying that I don't see, I don't see the 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 votes there for impeachment out of the House first of all, and for. Right. Uh, uh, for conviction in the Senate. So, it, but I don't see anything coming out of the House because I don't see the crimes. It may feel criminal, some right. of the, the crazy stuff he does, but but I don't see it in a in an impeachment sense. Um, so, and his personality isn't going to let him resign. And then right. the, the cabinet, wow. Um, right. Dan, Dan Lipner, let me go to I, you real quick well, because – Real quickly, because um, we're coming down to the end of the show, uh, President is about maybe a couple hours away from giving a rally speech in Arizona, where Jeff Flake, the senator uh, of that great slate, the junior senator from Arizona, is pretty much being threatened with an all-out primary war by the White House and the president. Um, but when we've seen these rallies before, these rallies usually do the president and the administration more harm than good. Could today be an absolute self-destruct button if the president is not careful? Well, yeah, but those many, so many other things the president has done, and inexplicably his Kool-Aid drinking base is going to drink the Kool-Aid no matter how bitter that last taste. Going, boss, I don't quite know what that tastes. It doesn't taste right, but you're drinking it, so or at least you're, you want us to drink it, so we will. Um, so, but, but going back to Alan's point for a split second, another difference between Nixon and Trump, A, it's an insult to Nixon because Nixon was a smart guy in a lot of different ways. And... Second, Trump's got more to lose. The fact that Mueller is out there and whether or not the Russia investigation leads to something that's collusion for the election, I'm not certain Trump's business interests as vast or at least as vast he claims them to be are all necessarily – as clean as the driven snow and the, the kind of scrutiny he's going to be getting for his business interests is something like he's never seen before. His companies are not public. They're all closely held. So nobody's been monitoring the books the, the same way a public company does. So something else could turn up. And if it is, some, if it leads to other things like money laundering or anything else with all these questionable folks that are out there that seem to circle in the Trump world, 
all it takes is one for the house of cards to start falling, and then it's just not him. It's him and his kids. So he's well, got yeah. a lot more to fight for on the way out the door. We've got Maybe the tax returns will finally surface. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Was, hey, we've got we've got 13 minutes left, and I want to take a couple of minutes. I want to talk about uh, something, uh, Admiral. You touched on earlier, uh, but I I do want to take up the issue of what's happening uh, with the Navy. Uh, as many of you all seen in the in the uh, headlines, uh, the Aegis class destroyer uh, John S. McCain collided with an oil tanker and just off the coast of Singapore in a heavily trafficked area, this being the fourth collision in so many months and the second major collision with loss of life. Uh, obviously, our thoughts and prayers go out to the crew members and the families and loved ones of those who lost their lives on board the McCain. Uh, tragic, tragic events. But Admiral Ken, I want, I, I want to bring this up because this is getting a lot of publicity. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Chief of Naval Operations called an operational pause after a bad, bad almost eight weeks for the Department of the Navy between the uh, the aircraft mishaps and the loss of life with the Marine Corps aviation program, and now the fourth major collision by a destroyer. What's happening in the Navy right now, and is a operational pause enough to fix the problem? So um, the reason for the operational pause is to try and figure out what is happening. Um, suffice it to say, it has been some number of years, uh, years since uh, we've had um, uh, this many incidents. Uh, actually, it's been years since we, we had the first incident, the other uh, collision with the Fitzgerald, uh, and, and uh, years since uh, a Navy ship uh, uh, impacted uh, a, another civilian ship. I think the last – we were talking about this last night. I think the Belknap incident – which took place in the uh, the late 70s and early 80s was the last time something like this happened. So we've had quite a, a number of years of good, safe operations. The whole point of the operational pause is to try and figure out what's going on. Uh, I made a post uh, last night on LinkedIn um, um, following up some comments that some folks had made, um, speculating that it was everything, but uh, including everything from training to – uh, uh, lack of vigilance. Uh, I even uh, someone even posed the, the question whether this was was uh, we the Navy was a victim of of cyber, a cyber attack, right? Um, and, and you know, at last report, uh, the 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 word that I heard was that uh, the the John S. McCain had suffered a a, uh, a steering casualty, and as you know, Justin, uh, losing the ability to control the direction of the ship uh, in a major shipping lane would be disastrous on any day. Um, I would, my, my, my comment that I made on the LinkedIn post is, is simply this. Um, let's, let's give the CNO, let's give his commanders and the, the, uh, the squadron and ship skippers the, the space and time they need um, to figure this out. They will. Um, I suspect it's not one thing. It's probably, it never is just one thing. It's usually, you know, uh, multiple things that are contributing to some of the accidents that are going on. Um, I want to remind folks that just last week, um, the, um, um, the, the the CO, I think the XO and an ops officer on the uh, the Fitzgerald, 
were officially relieved. Uh, they were found at fault for their accident. So, uh, again, uh, I think that we need to give the Navy some time to figure out what's going on. I think the reason for the operation, I think taking the operational pause by CNO Richardson was a good thing to do. Uh, and I think that it, uh, we, we will get to the bottom of, of this and, and find out what's going on. Ken, is, is this, as some have said here in Washington, a result of, uh, I've heard people say that this is a result of sequestration. This is a result of, uh, we can even get hyper-political and say this is a result of the Obama administration not funding the Department of Defense adequately, and they're just overworked and underfunded and overstressed. Is there any truth to any of that? I, I have to say that um, the, the, the number of, of deployments have gone up. The length of the deployments have gotten longer. The size of the force has gotten smaller as the economy has started to turn. Um, I think that um, when we were at the heart of sequestration and we were robbing Peter to pay Paul um, to, uh, to pay for parts and good maintenance, uh, I think those are definitely uh, – I think those can definitely be cited as contributing factors. Uh, the former secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus, was on this morning. Uh, and he was basically saying that that um, he was you know one of the few Navy secretaries that had had built as many ships uh, as as uh, in his in the short in the time frame that he was Secretary of the Navy. Um, I I, I kind of smirked at that because it's hard for me to think of the LCS as a credible war war platform, but um, um, but I think increasing the number of ships is a good thing. But when you can't staff them if you can't train uh, adequately because of funding. Uh, if you can't keep them maintained properly, again, because of funding, you're only making the problem worse. But again, I, I'm not willing to sit here and say right now that sequestration is the issue, but I think, uh, I think it is definitely a contributing factor to the fatigue of the fleet. Okay, very good. Uh, Ken, obviously, um, you're hearing a, a lot of things. I, I know that the, uh, the Navy announced today that they had recovered some of the bodies in the uh, in the birthing area along the water line where the collision happened. Uh, this can't be an easy investigation. What, what do they hope to achieve in the overall investigation? Is it more of a lessons learned in the Navy, or is this more of a, um, a, a situation of finding cause and, and bringing people to justice? It's both. Uh, it's both. Uh, I think that if you are the parent of one of these sailors uh, who who uh, who, who uh, was killed in this, you want to understand that some justice is going to get meted out if there are people that are at fault. Um, but more importantly, um, whenever we have an accident in the Navy, um, you've got uh, representation from the Navy Safety Center. You've got whoever is conducting the uh, the, the jag uh, the jag manual investigation to figure out whether there's any um, any cause uh, on the part of the uh, of the of the commanders of the uh, the ship and the, uh, the the folks who have to watch. Uh, they will go through uh, a very very detailed level of reconstruction to figure out exactly who was where, who was doing what, what orders were given, uh, what events happened. And it is a, it is you know unfortunately this has become a very very precise and exact science, 
and the the results of this will not take uh, years or, or months. They will figure out what's going on some uh, probably in in, in uh, within, a, within a matter of days or weeks. Um, okay. So, but and 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 uh, uh, to go along with 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 that, yeah, there'll be lessons learned. Um, there will be. Um, uh, you know, there will be additional safety stand downs to talk about what happened on the McCain, what happened on the Fitzgerald, what happened on the Antietam. You know, what 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 did these crews do or not do uh, to 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 basically get themselves out of this or to 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 contribute to making 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 this a bad bad day for the Navy or four or five bad days. Very good. Well, listen. Uh, obviously, our, our thoughts are with the entire Navy family. Uh, I know this hits home to both uh, you and I, Admiral Ken, but uh, we want to let them know that we're thinking about them. And on that, on that note, uh, we're going to close out another successful week here on the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. On behalf of Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Esquire, and a special shout-out, thank you very much for coming back on the show, Sharmila Anchari. Sharma, I hope you, you'll, you'll be back again. Me too. Yeah, well, how about just, you Even if it's only yeah, virtually. Just, well, just, just come by any Tuesday. Anyway, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday live uh, on Blog Talk Radio, where we will talk about the latest and greatest. We'll probably have some comments on the latest happening on today's uh, Donald Trump speech down in Arizona. You can follow us on our Facebook page, uh, www.facebook.com slash backroompolitics. You can follow us online uh, through Twitter at backroompolitics. You can also see our website, www.backroompolitics.org. We'll see you next week, America. Have a great one. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.